What's new at HQ? We'll talk about that and more with Brent Hershey, General Manager of Content at BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 12th. It's show number two of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. As I mentioned, we'll talk with Brent Hershey, the general manager of content at BaseballHQ.com, about prospect watching, the content at BaseballHQ.com, and his early sleepers and bleepers for 2016. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Hunter Strickland, Chris Bryant, Michael Conforto, and more. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at Aaron Hicks, Justin Upton, Ian Kinsler, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on St. Louis right-handed starter Alex Reyes. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the battle for left field in Cincinnati and whether Steve Sishek is sleepless in Seattle. In our preseason forecaster position profile segment, Greg Fishwick looks at corner infielders. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the tough decision to leave a long-time league. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Can't you feel the momentum building? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here in an exciting time of the year as we get ready for drafts. It is a really exciting time of the year. I like saying welcome back to the show because, of course, they call Major League Baseball, the players call it the show, so spins off for us in the same way. It's great to talk about baseball. And let's start with uh, Jock Thompson's Keeper League series. It's a pretty interesting uh, look at relievers that you might want to be targeting not just for this year, but for down the road as well. Uh, Hunter Strickland was one of the names that popped up in that in that Jock Thompson Keeper's column. Yeah, very definitely. Let me let me talk about Jock's series for just for a second first. You know, he he does those for every position, and I find them invaluable in looking at guys who are are just kind of pre-breakout sort of guys uh, who have not earned ten, didn't earn ten dollars last year, but are likely to over the next few years. And really, really valuable series. But as you said, the one on relievers, Hunter Strickland's a guy that you definitely want to look at this year. Came up last year through fifty-one innings, fifty strikeouts, so almost a strikeout an inning, two point four five ERA. Uh, 1.8 control, so it wasn't walking anybody. Uh, so very, very solid pitching uh, in his first exposure to the majors. And at this point, kind of behind folks in the pecking order in in um, uh, in San Francisco. I mean, he's not the kind of guy who's going to be looked at as a closer immediately, but uh, certainly has that pedigree, uh, certainly got, got some closing, uh, has 25, uh, converted his last 25 minor league save opportunities going back to 2013. So a guy who could become a closer uh, with the right set of circumstances in San Francisco, and we certainly know that those circumstances happen uh, with pitchers all the time. So Hunter Strickland's a guy that's got skills uh, and uh, not a, an immediate path to a closing opportunity, but uh, that means you might get him for far less dollars than if he looked a, a, like 
the closer to start the season. In fact, in keeper leagues and dynasty leagues, it could almost be viewed as advantageous if he goes into the season not being the closer, because it will certainly depress his price at drafts. And uh, of course, a lot depends on your league format, whether you can afford to carry a guy like Hunter Strickland as a bullpen reliever who's not getting saves in the expectation that sooner or later he will. It's always a bit of a gamble. He's got a couple of guys ahead of him in Casilla and Romo. Does that not give you pause to think that, uh, you know, if uh, Casillas starts the year as we expect with the job and he falters, Romo's probably next up. So Strickland's actually kind of got two dominoes that need to fall before he gets his shot, possibly. Yeah, you know, I think that's, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, there are two guys ahead of him in the pecking order. Now, you know, he actually has better skills than, than either one of them, if you take a look at the from a skills perspective. And he's younger than both of them. So, uh, he might in a dynasty league, especially he's a great a great grab, um, because I, I, if he doesn't become the closer this year, my guess is that as as Casillo and Romo get more expensive, he's likely to become the closer in the next year or two. Uh, this year, it's a more much more speculative speculative choice, I think. And uh, as Jock points out, both Casilla and Romo are free agents after 2017. So, at worst, you'd think Strickland is is two years away. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Moving on, uh, Matt Cederholm at BaseballHQ.com does the Market Pulse column, and this is a, an, a column in which Matt looks at the average draft position in mock drafts where players are going and compares it to where BaseballHQ.com valuations say they should be going, and uh, tries to identify players who are either overpriced or underpriced in the, in the market compared to what we think they're worth. And uh, uh, this week he's focusing on third baseman, and one player he says is going way too early, that is being overvalued by the market, is Chris Bryant of the Cubs. That seems hard to follow because Chris Bryant's a pretty good player. Well, I love Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant's a wonderful player. I, I th- certainly think that... Uh you know, he's a guy you would want to have on your team. But right now at this point, the, the ADP for Chris Bryant is 11. This is a guy who's getting picked up in the first round of drafts. Now, Chris Bryant had a good season last season, but we're talking about a guy who's going into his second year in the majors. Uh, and a, a two thirty two expected batting average last year, huge red flag. Much too much risk, I think, to take in the first round of a draft. Uh, low contact rate as well, 64% contact rate. So... You know, here's a guy that I, that I would, yeah, a great third baseman. I'd love to have him on my team, but a very, very risky first-round pick. Lots of sources of risk. We've talked about this in the past, but I think the first one to really, really be concerned about is that strikeout rate, which uh, he, he kind of hit the ball so hard last year when he made contact that his, his uh, batting average on balls in play was elevated. Now, ordinarily we say that that, uh, that level should be around 30%, but we've had proof here at BaseballHQ.com in research from the past that says actually the batting average on balls in play is an individual player thing, not a global thing um, like we would expect with most pitchers. It's always 30% for starters, but for individual batters, it kind of is a level that you set by yourself. And a big part of that is, can you run? And another big part of it is, do you hit the ball hard? And to Chris Bryant's credit, he does both. Yeah, he does. He does indeed do both. And certainly one of those guys who's, uh, whose batting average on balls in play could certainly be higher than that 30% that we're, you know, that 30% that we, we think is kind of the norm. So that's certainly a possibility. But uh, I, I think, uh, as I said, I think just too many red flags right now on Chris Bryant to make him a first-round pick. Uh, certainly as you get down further into the draft, a third-round pick, a fourth-round pick, great choice. But uh, he's going too high right now. 
And in fantasy baseball, the question is never, is this player worth taking? The question is always, is this player worth taking at the price? And uh, I agree with Matt, and I agree with you that with Chris Bryant, although he is a terrific player and has uh, plenty of, of talent, the problem is at first round value or possibly a $30, $31 bid, I think that's just too much risk because so much can go wrong with a player so young. Right, very definitely. In that same column, uh, Matt Cedarholm focused on a different player, and he's being ignored largely in a lot of the mock drafts so far. It might be a real good buying opportunity, Martin Prado. Yeah, Martin Prado is a guy who's being ignored really, really badly in drafts at this point. I mean, if you look at our at our rank in terms of projections, Martin Prado ranks number one eighty seven. So, you know, not a not a great guy, but certainly a guy you could pick up down uh, in the lower part of a draft. But he's going at number three forty seven. So most people are ignoring Martin Prado altogether. And what you've got to remember about Martin Prado, he's not sexy. He's been around a long time. Uh, he's not going to suddenly break out and become a star. But And nothing to really get excited about But with, with his skills, except this is a guy who has a very high batting average floor. I mean, you're, this is not a guy who's suddenly going to tank and hit 210 or 200 or below the Mendoza line. You're going to get a 260, 270, 280, even a higher batting average out of Martin Prado, and that's not at all bad in uh, in today's kind of kind of situation. At the same time, I mean, our projection is a 287 batting average. That'll place him way way up in the league above most guys. Ten home runs, maybe three stolen bases, 67 RBIs, 60 runs scored. Not bad at all for a guy that you can probably pick up in a reserve round. And at this point. In, in Miami, he, he has a, um, a, a clear path to playing time. He could wind up with second base eligibility uh, later in the season. So, uh, you know, you might not want him as a third baseman to start the season, but certainly a good guy to have on your bench and could be a great second baseman by the time the second half comes along. I think you're going to have to draft him as a third baseman, though, aren't you, in most, uh, in most draft formats? He's not going to pick up that eligibility right away. I don't think he got his 20 last year, did he? No, I don't think so. So I think you're right. It's going to take, he's got to be drafted as a third baseman. But here's a guy you can maybe even pick up with your last pick and, and could uh, surely be valuable as the season goes on. And uh, certainly better than, uh, than uh, a lot of guys you wind up picking up in a reserve round. Plus, there's chances are that, uh, well, in the National League, third basemen are going to be pretty thin on the ground anyway. So uh, drafting him as a third baseman, it might be very uh, appealing to just leave him there because the, the uh, pickings are going to be pretty slim trying to replace him if you do decide to move him to second. So Martin Prado gives you those options, which is always great. That's, that's one of the things I think that is routinely underestimated by fantasy players is the added options that you're given by multi-position players is something that actually adds a significant amount of value that hardly ever gets priced in. I think you're right, absolutely. And moving on, Nick, Ray Murphy has his speculator column up and running again this year, and uh, the first column of the year is what he calls his up list. And uh, for those who know, know the baseball forecaster, several of the player notes that are done include upside notes, where the analyst will say this guy has uh, a pretty good potential for an upside of X number of home runs or X number of stolen bases. There's some downside as well. But uh, Ray amassed all the players who had upside notes from the analysts and the baseball forecaster, and one of them, a uh, surprising uh, upside to my view, is Jonathan VR, the uh, infielder in Milwaukee. His outlook has improved quite a lot from when he was with Houston. Yeah, it has indeed. You know what? I really like these columns that, that Ray does because they, first of all, you know, I just used to spend hours going through the forecaster, marking all the guys with upside, and Ray puts all of that in one spot for you so you can look at the batters, 
with upside and look at what that upside is. But what he does in the column is go beyond that and talk about guys whose whose potential for playing time has improved during since that upside projection came out. And Jonathan Villar is one of those. I mean, here's a guy who has huge improved outlook since uh, with his move from Houston to, to Milwaukee. Uh, he, he's in Milwaukee. The Brewers have sent uh, Segura to Arizona. He's got a clear path to playing time right now. Certainly they might decide to bring up Orlando Arcia uh, maybe later in the season once we get past the June Super 2 cutoff point. Uh, but until then, Villar's got a lot of a lot of opportunity to establish himself. And the other thing with, with Villar is he can play all over the place. He can play second base. He can play third base. He can play shortstop. He can play in the outfield. So a, a lot of paths to playing time, especially on a team with Milwaukee where there are lots of questions about who's going to man exactly what position. And and the thing to look at with Villar, with Villar here's a guy that in 589 major league at bats has 42 career stolen bases. Okay. That's a that's a season worth of at bat, 42 stolen bases. So an upside of saying he can get 40 stolen bases in a season, easy for him to get there. He's got the speed. He now has the path for playing time. If playing time is regular, here's a guy that could easily net you 40 swipes. For his first couple of years, admittedly in limited at-bats, about 500, 475 at-bats his first two years, his batting averages were not impressive, uh, 209 in particular in 2014, uh, although his expected batting average that year was 242, so he was underperforming uh, largely because of a, of a hit rate drop to 27%. Uh, the two other years of his major league career, his hit rate has been around 36%. He does, he strikes out a bit, but he improved that last year. There's a lot of signs pointing in the right direction for Jonathan VR. Yeah, very definitely, I think. And so, you know, so a guy who, who has some upside and now has playing time. And as I said, that's the thing I really like about these columns of Rays at this time of the year is they let you know which of those upside guys may have even more upside because they're they're getting into a better playing time situation. And finally, a column at BaseballHQ.com that we really like is the starting pitcher Buyer's Guide by Stephen Nickrand. And last year, Stephen added the batting buyer's guide to his portfolio and does the same kind of terrific job. He really digs into those stats, Nick, in a most analytical and useful way for fantasy baseball players. Uh, Stephen's batting buyer's guide this week is a speculation column about young batters who could break out this year. And we already saw a pretty impressive debut by Michael Conforto of the Mets, the outfielder there. But Stephen says there might be more to come. There certainly might be. Uh, you know, Michael Conforto is a guy who, who uh, got off to a great start last year uh, in, in the, the time he was up. 174 at-bats, 9 home runs, 26 RBIs, 270 batting average. Looked really very strong. And, and the peripherals to go along with that. I mean, here's a guy with an expected batting average of 289. Uh, 159 uh, PX, uh, 158 expected PX. So uh, everything looked good with Michael Conforto in his first uh, exposure to the majors and uh, certainly could even get even better if he's got uh, got a full-time gig this year, which he's expected to have. So, uh, you know, a, a guy that's, that's, that's worth looking at as a breakout this year, uh, a full season of Michael Conforto could net you some really nice stats. In the baseball forecaster, he was described as a future blue chipper, although with a question mark. And given his current solid level, the analyst said that's really saying something. Now, the concern I would have with Michael Conforto, if I was looking at him as a potential fairly high draft pick or somebody that I wanted to spend uh, the $16 that we're projecting, is the playing time risk caused by his defense. He's really quite poor with the glove. And I wonder, Nick, how, how do you view that situation in, in, in the context of a team that figures to want to be kind of pitching and defense oriented because they're not really an offensively strong club? 
Well, you know, the, the defense uh, defense is certainly a problem with Michael Conforto, and certainly uh, that's something they're going to have to, to uh, uh, try to figure out in, uh, in New York is uh, with, with, a, with defensive liabilities, how do you kind of hide him on the field so that you can get that bat in the lineup? And so that's certainly something to keep an eye on as it could impact, the, impact playing time, but the bat may be so good that it doesn't matter a lot. Right now, Conforto does look like the starter in left field, and the challenge, if any, would be coming from guys like Alejandro Diaz and Juan Lagares. Doesn't look like we have a tremendous amount to worry about, but boy, if he starts clanging uh, balls out there or, or just playing really poorly, I wonder if the Mets, how much rope they're going to give him. Well, you know, that's, that's always a question for the guy who doesn't have great defensive skills, so something to keep, to keep in mind and something that uh, you, you might lose, use at the draft table to lower his price as well. Okay, Nick, I appreciate you taking the time and looking at the National League and players and columns and stuff from BaseballHQ.com. It's all real interesting, and of course, we're just starting to gather the momentum as we head towards draft day and, of course, opening day. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to, oh, good to do this. It's fun. I'm glad you enjoy it as much as I do, and I'm sure as much as our listeners do as well. Uh, Harold Nichols is a pitching analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat low these many years at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League and the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Earlier in the show, I was talking with Harold Nichols about some of the content at BaseballHQ.com, specifically the excellent job Stephen Nickrand is doing. Of course, we know him from his starting pitcher buyer's guide, but he's taken over the batting buyer's guide as well, and he has a column about breakout speculations. Uh, One of the players who popped up in that list as well is in Ray Murphy's baseball forecaster uh, speculator column about upside notes from the baseball forecaster annual, also which we talked about with Nick is Aaron Hicks, uh, formerly of Minnesota, top prospect, now applying his trade with the New York Yankees. Yeah, Aaron Hicks is an interesting guy. He was a late bloomer last year at 27. Had a really good second half with Minnesota after a lot of people, including myself, had given up on him. He'd uh, he'd played a, a couple of years in the majors. He'd always shown a little bit of everything, some power and, and some base running skills, but he had never put it together batting average-wise, and last year was the first year uh, that, that he actually nudged his batting average and expected batting average over the uh, substandard mark. Um, both were above 250, and uh, or uh, his batting average and expected batting average, I'm sorry, both clocked in at, at, uh, at a little over 250, and he put up terrific power and speed numbers. And so what does that mean for 2016, especially with the change of location? Well, he's going to he's going to Yankee Stadium now, and uh, his playing time situation is still a little bit muddy. But he's the youngest outfielder in a in a very old and uh, injury prone New York group. You've got Carlos Beltran and Jacoby Ellsbury, obviously, and he's also with an ALDH team. Uh, obviously, they've got a right at DH, but uh, Greg Bird is already out for the season. I expect him to get at least 400 at bats. Um, I also look for the Yankees to um, to to try to make a trade uh, somehow to unclog that. Uh, he seems to be the best, or the or the or at least has the most upside of a lot that uh, has got to be a little bit questionable in Yankee Stadium. In that short porch, given that uh, Hicks hit the ball a lot harder last year, uh, it's it's very possible he's a 2020 guy waiting to happen. Another thing uh, that's interesting about him, and you mentioned uh, Alex Rodriguez, the DH 
in New York. Also might be a bit injury prone, although he didn't seem to be last year. And and it's this. We have a uh, this concept at BaseballHQ.com about the 10 steps of a, of a prospect. And Alex Rodriguez is the model. A guy comes up with a lot of fanfare. He's a very highly touted prospect. And he struggles. And everybody jumps off the bandwagon, and the guy might even, uh, Rodriguez never did, but Aaron Hicks certainly struggled in Minnesota. He got sent down. He only got called back up because of injuries. And slowly but surely, he seems to be putting it together. And it's uh, it's on that rebound that you really want to be looking for a guy like Aaron Hicks because the price is going to be a lot more reasonable than it probably was when he first got called up, even though he now has the experience and the, and the uh, background to justify a higher price. Yeah, the surprising thing about Hicks was that he did it at such a late age. It's not unheard of. I mean, he did it at age 26. Um, but if you look at his first couple of years in uh, in uh, in Minnesota, uh, he hit 192. He hit 215. Um, yeah, he he showed that he could run, and uh, and he hit eight home runs in his in his rookie year, 2013, and 281 at bats. But you never had the feeling he was going to put it together until last year in the second half. I'm not a big follower of the Twins, but I also remember Hicks, who has a reputation as a plus defender of some note, even struggled with that. And, you know, when you're 21, 22, 23 years old and just starting out in the major leagues, it's it's hard. And we always expect these kids, and they are kids at that age, to just come up and start wailing away like every guy is Mike Trout or every guy is Bryce Harper. And most guys aren't Mike Trout or Bryce Harper. And it takes them a while to get adjusted to the pace to the difficulty of the game, to the major league lifestyle. All of these things really, it should be more of a surprise to us when a guy doesn't fail his first time out than when he does. Yeah, I think you're right. I, uh, obviously, a lot of this has to do with skills, and uh, and Hicks's skills are, are, are good, not great. He's not Mike Trout. But as you've said, there's a mental and, a, and, a, and an emotional approach to the game as well, and sometimes it just takes a little longer for some players than others. We mentioned Ray Murphy's uh, speculator column. He's covering all the players. Uh, he did all the hitters this week. I think the pitchers are just out as of Friday of this week. And uh, he's looking for every single guy in the baseball forecaster for whom the analyst prov- provided an upside note. Uh, all the players have these little player notes, and sometimes the analyst will say, here's a possible upside. And one of the ones uh, in the baseball forecaster that Ray Murphy pointed out, Justin Upton, new opportunity in a new place. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons the forecaster focused on Upton here is his fly ball rate. If you if you take a look at it, uh, it's been going up incrementally. It's been rising incrementally incrementally for the past three seasons. Uh, he um he hit 26 home runs last year at a 44 percent uh, fly ball rate. He's always been very consistent as as far as home run hitting goes. He's averaged 25, 26 over the last five years. Dipped below 20 only once. Um, and now he's in, in Comerica Park, which isn't great for home run hitters. Um, but this is a guy who's probably going to hit home runs anywhere. I mean, he hit 26 in Petco. Um, he's in a terrific lineup now. I think the real difference with, uh, with Upton uh, today is, uh, is he's probably in the best lineup that he's ever been in in his life. So you can almost count on the counting stats going up as long as he stays healthy. I think you're right about the fly ball being the key. Uh, as recently as 2012, he was well under 40%. He lodged a, a 36% hit rate into 012 and only had 17 home runs. And as you see that fly ball percentage ratchet up, boy, the home runs just are going up with it. Now, 26 last year with a 44% rate. If he pushes it up 
a little further, is there any shot at 30? He had 29 in 2014. Yeah, if you look at his numbers, I mean, 27 in 2013, 29, as you said, in 2014, 26 last year in Petco, which, funny these days, is actually a little more friendly than Comerica. But uh, I don't think the park really matters here. I think he's hitting enough fly balls, and he's he's been consistent enough season to season that uh, he's always a threat to hit 30 home runs, and particularly now in a in a on a in a lineup in which occasionally they're going to have to pitch to him because of the presence of all those other bangers, Cabrera and J.D. Martinez and stuff. Now I know uh, the, the research suggests there's no such thing as a lineup effect, but it's interesting to know where a guy's going to be in the lineup because it affects his RBI potential and his runs potential. Have you heard or read about any idea where Justin Upton's going to hit in the batting order in Detroit? No, honestly, I haven't. I haven't paid any attention to that. But, uh, um, again, uh, favorable lineup and, and a consistent home run hitter. I like Justin Upton in 2016. Of course, we'll find out about his batting order position as spring training goes along, but I can sure see him as a, as a two-place hitter, and and yeah, it could be a really good place for him because it'll bump up his runs, which is very valuable, but is always undervalued in drafts. I've, I've found in the many years I've been playing this game that people look at RBIs and they don't look at runs, even though they're equal categories. They both count. Yeah, it's an interesting spot, uh, the number two hole, and if you look at uh, Upton's patience, he's been no slouch. He's hit double dish a uh, double-digit walk rate for the past four seasons, so something to think about. And possibly some uh, stolen base potential up there. Yeah, I, I like Justin Upton this year. I think he could be a nice surprise, a, a nice profit, even if you have to invest uh, pretty substantially. Uh, speaking of Detroit, uh, Matt Cedarholm's market pulse column uh, looked at second baseman, of course, comparing the uh, average draft position of players with their value as Baseball HQ sees it at this point. And one of the names on his second base list, Matt Cedarholm wrote about Ian Kinsler of the Tigers. He had an interesting take, and I and largely I agree with it. Uh, of course, uh, uh, his take was that uh, um, at some point, obviously, uh, Kinsler is 34 now, um, and he's he's creating a lot of his value based on his playing time. He's been very healthy the last two seasons. In fact, the last four out of five seasons, he's received over 600 at-bats at the top of a, of a potent uh, Tiger lineup. Um, Matt's obviously not optimistic about him continuing to get this, and as we you and I both know nobody gets out alive, so at some point um, Kinsler's playing time is is going to recede a little bit. Um, I wrote uh, Kinsler's write up in the in the forecaster, and and my feeling was, um, despite the fact that his big time home run years are gone, and despite that he's aging, nothing here is cratering too dramatically. Um, his contact is holding firm. Um, he's hitting the ball reasonably hard. His line drive rate is is very very solid over the last four years, twenty percent. Uh, I like Ian Kinsler, even though he's not going to hit 20 home runs again. He's going to get his 15 home runs, maybe his 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 10 to 15 steals. Um, this is a guy where where you might want to draft him at the very top of you might not want to draft him at the very top of your second second base list because of some concessions to age. Um, I think he's going to be pretty consistent. You know, I have a lot of trouble trying to calibrate ages in these days in Major League Baseball. It used to be pretty dependable that we'd look at a peak from about 26 27 to about 32 or so kinsler's 34 but players are so much better conditioned now they have access to so much better medical care trainer care uh, exercise regimens diet even sleep a lot of major league teams are now investing heavily in making sure their players get not only the right amount of sleep but the right kind of sleep could it be that 34 is now still part of the peak yeah and i think it does depend on the player for sure but uh 
Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, we we have a lot more knowledge than we did in the past, and uh, and there are uh, you know a lot a lot more a lot better dietary knowledge and uh, and between game physical regimens and maybe Kinsler's one of those um, obviously he's 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 averaged 600 at bats a year for the past five years um, there's something to be said for that I was just going to make that very same point yeah 545 was his low in 2013 over the last five years all the other years since 2011 have been over 600 at bats and that's that is really worth something we're projecting 22 23 bucks i think i'd be pretty happy if i got ian kinsler for around that 22 23 we're projecting 93 runs scored speaking of that uh, double digit homers double digit bags and a fairly decent batting average of 287 which nowadays is uh, mighty fine yeah pretty much my take too and again uh, as we we touched on with upton uh, that's a pretty good lineup and it didn't get any worse over the off season in your keeper league column jock uh, you had a dynasty reload you called it focusing on relief pitchers let's start with sam dyson yeah let's let's talk about dyson uh, he was for for any anyone who watched texas last year he was he was he might have been their most valuable reliever in the second half. Obviously, Sean Collison had the terrific breakthrough year as a closer, but Dyson was a terrific multi-inning force last season. Uh, his ground ball rate was 69%. His 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 dominance zoomed to 8.5. That Texas closer situation isn't rock solid, despite the year Tollison had. And uh, while Kella Keone could be a, a, a will be in the save hunt should Tollison fail. The Rangers uh, actually used Dyson in a lot of very key late-game situations uh, all year last year. He's the kind of guy who could rack up very good innings with a hand with a handful of saves and wins on a Ranger team that should be good offensively. I like Dyson. I like Dyson, too, for all the reasons you say. And in a keeper league, especially where you can get those guys, if you're rebuilding in particular, you can get those guys for a dollar or maybe even reserve round with a reasonable expectation that they're going to be, you know, helpful as injury replacements in the short term right now, but have real good shots at the closer role down the road. Another guy like that is Michael Givens in Baltimore. And Jock, uh, at the end of the year last year, both for BaseballHQ.com and for USA Today, I wrote a uh, column about trends in the game. And one of the names that popped out was Givens because of his excellent metrics in a role where he was kind of invisible because they they have a closer, they had Darren O'Day as a setup guy, but Givens very quietly might have had the best skills in that whole pen. Yeah, and the fascinating thing about Givens, uh, first off, he's young and obviously he has options left, so potentially if he has a bad spring, and, and this is the risk you have with closers, he could be sent down uh, quickly before he comes back up again. But if you look at his numbers, um, you almost can't see how that's going to happen as long as he can continue anything uh close to that uh, um, before he came to Baltimore he posted a 1.73 ERA and a 79 to 16 strikeout to walk ratio at double a Bowie he converted 15 of, of 17 save opportunities so he's kind of on the fast track for late innings and he and he recorded a 1.80 ERA in Baltimore with an 11.4 Dom and a 6.3 command over 30 innings this is a guy who needs to confirm these skills and obviously um, his ground ball rate at, in Baltimore left a little to be desired. It had been better in the minors. Um, Zach Britton looks pretty rock solid as a closer right now, but if you think about it, he's in his arbitration years. And if Baltimore starts off badly, uh, Britton could 
very easily become trade bait come July, which would really make a, an interesting uh, situation and career path for Givens. If I remember correctly from writing about Givens last year, I think his ground ball percentage was much higher in the minor leagues than it was in the major leagues. So that's a something you can look at and say this is going to fall into place given enough time. He's not a sort of 30-30-30 type of pitcher. He's more like a you know 50-20-30 type of pitcher. And anybody who can keep the fly balls down in Baltimore with those tremendous strikeout numbers, tremendous control numbers, Michael Givens is just a, the kind of guy. I could see him being the closer this year, in fact, if things fall the right way. But in a keeper league, boy, what a target. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm lucky enough to own him in one league and uh, not giving him up. Could you just briefly talk about Liam Hendricks? I remember him from Minnesota, a very ineffective starter. He came to Toronto last year, and he was one of their best bullpen guys. It seems like, for some reason, the sh- being in the short role really allowed him to blossom as a as a power pitcher. Yeah, Liam Hendricks is one of those guys that uh, th- this seems to be happening more frequently than it ever has in the past. You see a starting pitcher who is mediocre in that role, and, and Hendricks never had an ERA below five in the four years he started in the majors. They put him in the pen, and all of a sudden his velocity jumps. He was throwing mid-90s by the end of the year. He posted a 2.92 ERA and a 1.08 whip in 58 uh, innings, in, I'm sorry, 65 innings in relief. His strikeouts per nine innings soared. He struck out over, over a batter an inning. And all of a sudden, this guy's a very effective relief pitcher. And when you put him in a spot, you, you, you move him out of Toronto. He's now in Oakland, um, where saves aren't exactly locked down. You, you still have Sean Doolittle over there, but he's still coming off of injury. Um, this is a guy suddenly who, who is throwing harder than ever, who's striking out a lot of hitters. He has a, a ground ball rate of 46%. He could very much be in the safes in the save uh, scene in Oakland. And Jock, uh, if all goes well for Liam Hendricks, he could be the latest in a line of Australian relievers. Uh, a few years ago, of course, Troy Percival in uh, Anaheim was a very successful closer. Then Grant Balfour had some good years, followed by some horrendous years. Maybe Liam Hendricks will be the next closer from down under, shall we say? Yeah, the Aussies seem to produce them, uh, don't they? But the one thing Hendricks definitely does is remind us that. Uh, Relievers, uh, relievers can pop up in the most unusual and unlikely uh, places, and you really have to, to, to watch them closely if you're looking for late-inning solutions and options for your rotation. Also, there was a guy, a left-hander named Graham Lloyd, I think was Australian as well. Jock, uh, thanks very much for helping us out with the American League. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview with Brent Hershey, the General Manager of Content at BaseballHQ.com. Hang with us, it's Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ, reminding you that our First Pitch Forums are back for 2016. Join Ron Chandler, Jock Thompson, Todd Zola, myself, and more of your favorite Baseball HQ radio voices in these three-hour interactive seminars. These entertaining and highly engaging events are designed to give you the information you need to win your fantasy league in 2016. This year's tour includes some traditional stops and some new locations. We'll be in Oak Brook, Illinois on February 27th, St. Louis on February 28th, Houston on March 5th, Atlanta on March 6th, McQueen, Virginia on March 11th, Saddlebrook, New Jersey on March 12th, Natick, Massachusetts on March 13th, Arcadia, California on March 13th. 
The Baseball Forecaster and BaseballHQ.com are both tremendous resources, but sometimes the best advice is live advice. So join us for a First Pitch Forum event in your area. We even have a special offer for Baseball HQ radio listeners. When registering for a First Pitch event at BaseballHQ.com, just use the coupon code RADIO2016 to save $5 on your admission. That's five bucks off your registration just for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Again, that code is RADIO2016. We're looking forward to seeing you live and in person at our first pitch of forum events this February and March. Come out and join us. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Abbott. Before we go on, the official scorer has called an error on Ray Murphy. That first pitch forum in Arcadia, California, March 12th, not March 13th. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by the general manager of content at BaseballHQ.com, Rent Hershey, for the first time, I think, ever. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, I think you're right. I think this is my uh, virgin uh, experience here. I hope you're not recording this from the backseat of a car is all uh, all I'll say about that. Uh, In addition to your duties, Brent, managing the content side at BaseballHQ.com, and before we get to talking about that, you're also a member of the scouting team at the site, and before we get into detail about players and analysis, uh, just describe quickly what does a team member do on the Baseball HQ scouting side? Yeah, our our team members uh, function very similar to uh, what we know of scouts on a major league team. Uh, we all uh, go and watch uh, games, often from uh, minor league games, often from behind uh, home plate, sort of uh, taking notes. We each have our own different methods of that. Uh, some some guys sort of keep more a more traditional score. Some guys uh, teach more, uh, take more narrative notes. Um, and, and we're looking for basically the same types of things that the the major league scouts are, and that is basically uh, impact. Players, uh, they're they're looking at uh, you know ranking their prefer pref lists uh, for each team that they cover, and uh, we're looking at that also, but obviously um, translating it, attempting to translate it into what uh, a player's fantasy production might look like when he reaches the majors. Well, let's get into that. You're you're scouting these guys, but you're taking it from a fantasy baseball perspective because of the site. So when you look at a batting prospect, for instance, what is it that you're looking for when you talk about a potential impact player? I I mean, we kind of boil it down to these, you know, different uh, two or three kind of different uh, skills, and that would be power, obviously, which would uh, generate uh, the home runs and uh, and RBIs uh, for your fantasy teams. The uh, speed, obviously, obviously, which is part of of uh, most uh, fantasy score uh, formats, uh, and then a pure kind of hitting tool, a batting average, um, that can also include kind of uh, plate approach for those that are playing in uh, on base percentage leagues. Um, so I, I kind of think about it in those uh, three terms. Uh, the one difference, obviously, between what we do with a fantasy outcome and what a uh, traditional scout would is a uh, is is not put as much emphasis on defense. Um, we do, I, I, I we do, and I encourage our team to think about that, uh, but more in terms of if a player's uh, outstanding defense or atrocious defense is going to affect his uh, playing time, kind of his at bats uh, as he rises through the level and eventually uh, gets to the majors. Um, but beyond those 
beyond the power speed and kind of hitting, I mean, a more overarching thing that I look for is just the kind of physicality uh, of these young players. Um, you know, are their movements kind of fluid? Uh, do they make it look easy? Or are there parts of their, uh, you know, batting stand style that uh, that just look difficult? Because um, I think those... Uh, it's basically so it basically boils down to athleticism uh, and 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 how these guys make these uh you know very mechanical things uh look fluid and uh and we know that over time oftentimes the athletes are the ones that are able to repeat those things again and again and and uh often that has a big part in their uh, success on the field. I think maybe also that's kind of an underrated uh, aspect of player evaluation sometimes. I mean, clearly there are going to be your John Crooks and your Greg Luzinski's uh, over the, the course of, you know, uh, uh, decades or however long it takes for guys like that to filter all the way up to the top based on some kind of unbelievable hand-eye coordination. They, you know, guys who wouldn't be ordinarily considered to be paradigms of athleticism. But I think even when you look at a guy like uh, John Crook, you know, he was no physical specimen, but in a batter's box, he looked very athletic. It was a very smooth and easy stroke. He could hit the ball uh, to all fields. He he was just a good hitter. And uh, how do you get past the, um, I don't want to say bias, but the, uh, the, the, the need to see a guy like maybe uh, a uh, Jason Hayward or something like that, who clearly looks like a ball player, Dave Winfield, guys like that, and 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 be able to spot the John Crux and the guys who maybe are going to uh, be able to m- reach the majors despite not looking that way. Yeah, I mean it's a good question, and you you know you kind of corrected yourself by saying you don't want to call it bias, but I think it is because uh, that is the the trap of of thinking just in this um, physical body kind of way uh, when looking at prospects because, uh, you know, you, you get someone with a uh, non-traditional physique um, and it may give you, uh, you know, negative outlooks before you actually even see him in the batter's box. So I actually, you know, that's the whole stats versus scouting thing I think is, is overblown, but that's, but this is one aspect where, I think the stats do help uh, in some aspects because conceivably, I assume, you know, without having his baseball reference page in front of me, you know, Kruk hit well and continued to hit well all the way up through the minors like that. Um, and uh, you see those results either on your stat sheet or sitting at the park just seeing how uh, a good of hitter he was because of whatever the hand-eye coordination rather than the uh, you know, the V-shaped physique kind of thing. And I think that's a point when looking at the statistics and, you know, combining that um, with the more pure scouting body movements um, perspective uh, give you a fuller picture when you look at these players. A guy who comes to mind in this regard, Brent, is Cole Calhoun of the Angels. Uh, I, I, I remember he was a really good college player, and he was a pretty good minor league hitter as well, but he always had this knock that he wasn't the right body type, and yet here he is in the major leagues, a pretty effective hitter. For sure, I agree. And, and you, when I look at Calhoun's swing, and I, don't, uh, I see a great swing, I mean one that's very balanced, uh, gets leverage again. Yes, when, when you're viewing that and, and taking that into account, 
you know, there's value to be had there, and you can sort of project uh, him going forward as being, uh, you know, a major league, uh, a major leaguer, and contributing in some way. I guess the uh, bias against body types is probably a little less for pitchers because we have so many pitchers in the big leagues who are, to be charitable, unathletic looking, all the way up to the extremes of guys like um, Bartolo Colon and, and uh, you know, a Cy Young winner who was uh, not hardly a poster boy for Pilates. Uh, do, do you find that the, when you're looking at a pitcher, the, the rules are a little different? A little bit, um, although although the pitching motion and the, the ability of a pitcher to kind of repeat uh, his mechanics each time is is so important. When I when I'm looking at pitchers and I'm, I mean that's one thing you look for is 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 he repeat that very very complex motion you know moving the body parts in that way uh, on each pitch and that you know and if so that helps deception that helps uh, his command of his pitches being able to put them where they want. So in some senses uh, I think you're right that body types for pitchers. There may be a wider spectrum of that, but still the ability to kind of repeat a pitcher's motion uh, gives them a better chance of uh, long-term success. But most of the stuff I've read, Brent, about repeatability of delivery is more of a problem for tall, thin guys because there's like Randy Johnson types, especially, uh, that's an extreme, who have so much length and width to manage in keeping their delivery consistent versus a guy who's six feet tall, you know, of relatively normal size. That's the counterpoint to that, which I would uh, very much agree with also. Um I wasn't necessarily thinking height as much in there, but that's exactly right. I mean, you have tall guys, you know, someone like uh, Kyle Gibson in Minnesota or, uh, you know, his organization mate that hasn't quite gotten it together, Alex Meyer um, in that Twins uh, minor league system, that just are so tall and lanky, and and because the extremities are longer, it's, uh, you know, there's more margin of error there each time. They go through that. So I uh, certainly would agree, and I've seen that. I mean, we've all seen that. These, uh, you know, six, seven, you know, 185 guys uh, trying with a huge fastball but can't, but can't uh, you know, command it where they are because their mechanics are, um, you know, are just out of whack. Brent, there are so many prospects in so many leagues, and you've only got so much time. Nobody can look at all of them. So when you're looking at comparing one prospect to another, I know BaseballHQ.com has a top 100 ranking. There are organizational rankings. And in a lot of instances, you're being asked to rate prospects you've never actually seen, maybe a YouTube clip here or there, but sometimes not at all. So how do you build in the fact that, hey, I've seen that guy, but I haven't seen that guy, and, and figure out uh, based on what, which one of them deserves a higher ranking slot? I kind of think in terms of a hierarchy, when I think about this question, and it is certainly valid, as you said, there's so uh, many of them. Um, obviously, I take my own, when I've seen a prospect and, and have my own uh, notes on that, I kind of give that uh, the highest uh, you know, the highest weight for that, um, kind of seeing that guy in person. Um, again, how, how he looks in the batter's box, uh, how he looks on the mound, and, and some of the performances there uh, that may not be captured in the stat line. Uh, like you talked about Kruk hitting to all fields or um, someone like Aaron Nola uh, being able to kind of just locate his pitches wherever he wants. So that's a, sort of the first thing. Uh, sort of the, what I put the most weight on. Um, 
I, you know, do do some, as you said, some uh, some video uh, looks. Um, we have the, uh, you know, the minor league video package. It has some games, and and that allows you to see some prospects, um, not from a, not not in, not in a live setting, of course. Um, but again, kind of <clears throat> making my own notes and observations from that, um, and then. And then we have, I think each of us in the scouting team have contacts from other scouts that we meet at the park and that kind of thing uh, that we may, that we do refer to at different times about, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, this specific player. What, what have you seen about him this year? And have you seen him uh, develop from previous years? That kind of thing. Uh, and then, and then, kind of fourth on down there is just, you know, the vast amount of material. Uh, on the internet and other places uh, that you can just read about that. Um, that has to be uh, have to be careful about that a little bit, um, obviously, because anyone can uh, throw up a, a couple observations on the web and call it a scouting report. Um, but uh, but there is some there are some good trusted sources out there uh, to to uh, supplement uh, sup- hopefully supplement of uh, what you learned. Um, in these other three areas, the one thing that uh, that we, as a miners team at Baseball HQ, have done, I've sort of uh, have encouraged this, is to really find ways to share information. Um, several of us are placed at different places, uh, at different parts of the country. Um, I'm in Philadelphia, and, and so we get to see uh, a bunch of teams here in the Northeast. Jeremy and Rob are both in different uh, locations in the Midwest and, and follow the Midwest League pretty uh, pretty well. And uh, Chris Blessing is based uh, in Georgia and gets to see uh, some uh, Southern League AA action down there as well as uh, some low A also. And so we're looking at, uh, at ways in which uh, our team can uh, share that information uh, because obviously the the affiliates, the minor league affiliates from the teams are at different places throughout, scattered throughout the country. And so uh, while Jeremy may see Byron Buxton at low A uh, in the Midwest League a couple of years ago, uh, Chris may see him, you know, Chris saw him last year at double A at, at Chattanooga. Um, and so the ability to kind of compare those uh, notes and uh, share that information, uh, and I think really enhances uh, our ability to kind of get a read on a prospect. Do you concern yourself with the idea that if uh, everybody's sort of trusting everybody else, not just within the Baseball HQ team, but you're looking at the other big providers of scouting information, Baseball America and so forth, that there's a, a certain tendency possibly to create a groundswell of support for a guy based on, you know, nobody actually saw him, but everybody everybody covers what everybody else was covering, and it's a big circle of not really knowing what's going on, or one guy saw him, and, and then the next guy repeated it, and so on, and, you know, before long, you've got Babe Ruth out there? That is a valid, a valid concern, and that's why uh, we, as best we can, attempt to you know, attempt to avoid that, and and we've uh, at Baseball HQ have worked uh, more in the past uh, five six years to um, to make sure that the guys that are writing our reports and and 
again, sort of thinking forward to what this player is going to look like as a fantasy player, uh, do kind of visit the parks themselves and 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 get their own looks uh, at the player. But there is a certain amount of 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 trust within within that as far as uh, trusting each other's eyes too. Uh, and um, I mean, the other thing that we haven't talked about is this: is that it, on a whole, this whole projecting prospect thing is, you know, it's just a wide range of outcomes. There's there's no perfect uh, system uh, out there to do that, and uh, there's no there's been while some organizations and some scouts are certainly better than others, uh, you know, as any sort of scout will tell you. Uh, there's just multiple instances of, oh, that looks like a can't-miss guy who missed, <laughs> or on the other side. Uh, we didn't think this, this uh, prospect had the tools or mental fortitude or whatever to become anything, and uh, here he is as a major league regular. So it's a very inexact science, um, and, and uh, I think the best scouts uh, in whatever capacity are ones that are just always uh, always trying to to learn and improve um, to uh, evaluate these players the best they can. Of course, Brent, uh, as we head into draft season and draft prep season, there's going to be a lot of leagues where owners are going to be having farm drafts. They're going to be usually in keeper leagues. Most of the high-level guys will already have been taken, so you're looking a little deeper into the minor leagues. What advice would you give to somebody who's planning to look into the sort of high A, maybe double A, maybe even low A kind of levels to find long-term prospects that might have fantasy impact five, four, five years down the road, batter versus pitcher, for instance, uh, age for level, that kind of thing? Age for level is is one thing certainly to look at. I know you and, and Rob Gordon have talked about that uh, here, too. When I, uh, One of the things that uh, one of the easiest things I think to do for uh, the fantasy player from a statistics standpoint is to look at both how, for both pitchers and batters, how they control the strike zone. Um, so for so for batters, you know, kind of the strikeout to walk ratio uh, gives you some indication, even in the in the lower levels. Uh, is this is this does this batter know the difference between a ball and a strike? You know, and can he get the bat on the ball when he needs to? Um, some of the other outcome stats, uh, home runs, obviously RBIs and that sort of thing, especially in the lower minors, are are kind of tough. I use them as sort of supplementary uh, rather than foundational stats when I'm when I'm looking at something like that because of the different, the crazy park factors, uh, the fact of of uh, the types of pitching, for instance, the low-A hitter's uh, face and all that. But that ability to control control the strike zone, I think, is is sort of a foundational skill for that. And on the pitching side, very similar also, kind of strikeout-to-walk um, ratio. Uh, can, you know, how successful is is the guy at, at gaining strikeouts, and, and can he avoid um, the free passes? And all, you know, those metrics are are certainly readily available and we're, um, you know, Baseball HQ subscribers and, and other analysts are obviously very um, aware of those. I mean, also for pitchers, uh, I do look at at whip a little bit, um, but also uh, how does that 
how is that constructed? In other words, is that because a guy is, is the guy have a good whip because he's not walking anybody, um, or or is it because he's limiting hits, um, and both of which are are um, are good attributes? But there's you know there are guys with that that, that don't walk many batters uh, that also give up a lot of hits, and so their whip is not all that good. So kind of balancing all that. Uh, in general, is, would be one would be a piece of advice I would get give. Turning it around, the, the other thing that people are thinking about prospects as they do roster planning and draft planning is in many leagues you're allowed to draft minor leaguers as reserve list players, these kind of things, with the expectation that they might help this year. And so do you have maybe one hitter or one pitcher you think might be fantasy productive getting playing time in the majors this year? Protecting the playing time is always the tricky part with that. I like Trey Turner. Uh, shortstop, and he's played some second base too in Washington. The, the opportunities there, um, he has uh, he has the great speed and should be able to steal bases right away. Uh, has hit um, since he since he came up from uh, since he was drafted from North Carolina State. Uh, has hit a lot better than what people uh, realize. I think there's uh, you know perhaps even at his peak perhaps double-digit home runs in there. I think he's going to be a, a gap doubles hitter. Um, and, and like I said, most importantly, it seems like even if he doesn't win the job out of spring training, that, that there will be a spot for him there in the Washington middle infield. Uh, on the pitching side, uh, I've, I really like what I've seen out of Jose Barrios from the Minnesota Twins a couple times that, that I've seen him in person in the minors. Um, he has... Uh, Three really above-average pitches uh, gets great movement on there. On them all is able to locate. And again, with uh, with pitchers, there's more because there's you know because you're one of five starters. It's I think about it more as a thing that when when the team says that you're ready, you know that Barrios is ready, he'll be up. So Turner and uh, Barrios are both guys with considerable experience in the high minors so far and uh, really on the cusp of the majors, I think, and we'll certainly see both of them in 2016. And just from a personal note, there's nothing as exciting as going to a minor league ballpark and seeing a really dominant pitcher. It's very exciting. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Brent Hershey from BaseballHQ.com. He's the general manager of content, and I mentioned that at the outset, that you have that role. In a nutshell, Brent, what does it mean to be the general manager of content? Uh, It's basically a fancier role for editor-in-chief, I guess. Uh, uh, Ray Murphy and I um, are now share the, the administration, the running of the website, and although we have a, a great partnership and, and collaborate on most everything, um, the, two sort of, uh, the two sort of areas that we split up is the content side, which is what I take care of, uh, whereas he is a little more... Uh, experienced with some of the administrative and and database side uh, dealing with our tools. So my responsibility is primarily uh, all the articles, all the copy that you read on the site. So I work with our uh, writers to come up with a schedule um, of uh, when they're going to write. We work on uh, specific column ideas, uh, come up with specific... um, a new series that we want to do. Um, if a guy is going, you know, if a guy's going on vacation in in uh, July, I find I make sure that his column is covered by 
one of our other guys, um, one of our other writers, um, and then and then down to actually uh, once the articles come in, uh, copy editing and working with the writers and getting those in the best shape we can uh, and get them out and published. So that's the uh, that's the general manager of content sort of encompasses uh, that. And like I said, um, Ray helps out with that. Uh, too, but that's the that's the main delineation. As we head into 2016, a new fantasy baseball season. What new content has BaseballHQ.com added? I think the two pieces of content that the readers will recognize uh, is that our uh, once the season gets started, our daily matchups column will be a bit different. Um, we've got uh, a couple months here until opening day, which is when they run every day. Um, but we've uh, We've determined that that we're going to keep the basic things the same, which uh, through last season has been mainly pitcher analysis. Uh, but we're going to expand that in some senses, um, probably to include some more pitchers uh, and maybe get into some um, hitter analysis too for uh, that day's games. That's partially in response to the to the DFS issue. Um, which we obviously is a little bit in flux for now, uh, but that's that's one thing our matchups column I think you'll will be uh, different once opening day hits. And the other thing uh, is that is to expect a few more uh, research columns. Uh, we're doing some uh, hiring now and looking uh, for some guys to fill that and have s- several good candidates. Um, Ed DeCaria is our uh, head of research and analysis, and uh, he's got a couple really good uh, ideas to sleeve, and we've got, um, like I said, these other uh, new influx of ideas coming uh, where, where, uh, you know, where we can enhance the importance of, of what we can do with our research side and make it applicable to um, winning your fantasy league. And finally, uh, I want to talk about the BaseballHQ.com projections because I, I think the process is really interesting for how those projections get created. Uh, it's a little different from what other places do and how other projections are built. Maybe talk briefly about how BaseballHQ.com formulates its projections. It's a two-part process. We do some weighted average uh, sort of calculations uh, in the background uh, with, with the player's career. Um, so we're, we're, where we're looking at the players last uh, five years, I think, and given you know, given the heaviest weight of those statistics to the most recent year, and and uh, scaling it back uh, for the other years beyond that, and what our system does is is then sort of spits out a uh, you know a base sort of projection, uh, sort of ratios, if you will, kind of based on uh, so many at bats, like based on a hundred at bats, let's say, um, and he's this this player. Know, with that history and what we know about him, um, you know, we'll produce this many home runs, this many RBI, whatever. Um, so that's the first part. Then the second part is that we turn the playing time part over to uh, individuals that we have, playing time analysts, uh, that are assigned to the individual teams, uh, almost, almost as like a almost as like their beat, as you think of like a beat writer or something like that, where they're expected to kind of know the ins and outs of the roster at the major league level and a little bit at the minors and basically put in our, uh, put into, create inputs, excuse me, to 
um, to project the playing time so in a realistic manner so that once opening day hits, uh, if you're projecting the Philadelphia Phillies, you, uh, you know like at, at second base or you project out at second base what, which players are going to get the, the, uh, on a percentage basis the playing time for that position. So obviously those numbers have to add up to 100%. So if it's, you know, right now, uh, just off the top of my head, if it's Cesar Hernandez at 80%, uh, Freddie Gallus at 10%, and Andres Blanco at 10%, or something like that. Um, then those playing time percentages uh, are added up and then applied back into each individual player's baseline projection, um, and then and then that that comes up with our projection line at the uh, that we come up in our in our files. Um, so it's important. It's that's a that's a uh, development that uh, we've been doing uh, for quite a number of years now, and it really seems uh, to make the most sense. And, you know, it's, it's an ongoing kind of interactive uh, feature. I mean, where if you're assigned to a team, you're kind of, you have the ability sort of every day to tweak that, uh, those uh, percent numbers as you need to, which obviously then affects the at-bats, so that uh, if, for instance, Cesar Hernandez uh, is playing terrible in May and gets sent back down and and the whole, you know, Phillies infield or that team's infield switches around, um, our analysts are going to be ready to uh, give their, um, according to their best judgment, about how that playing time is going to be uh, how, how that missing playing time now is going to be distributed, and then you know by that next morning or whatever, uh, all of those projections are updated according to those new inputs. Um, so it's a very interactive process, and our uh, playing time analysts, um, you know, work hard at, uh, like I said, knowing those teams. Uh, it means knowing the manager's tendencies uh, in some instances, um, and knowing when. Uh, you know, knowing when, especially in spring training, they're shooting off more noise than news, as they say. Um, but that's the that's that's in a, in a nutshell how we get to those projections. Yeah, I think the most interesting part of the whole thing is this: uh, the division of labor, where we where the the system, the algorithm, spits out a per at bat or per inning pitched value for every player insofar as the categories are concerned and then somebody else says and here's how many at bats that guy's going to get here's how many innings pitch that guy's going to get based on particular knowledge of the team rather than a kind of a generalized thing i think it really helps the projections be as accurate as they can you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with brent hershey from baseballhq.com and Brent, before the season this year, we're going to be asking our experts to give us some sleepers and bleepers for 2016. Of course, sleepers is a term we all know and understand, and we call them bleepers as a clever rhyme for sleepers. Players you look at and you think, no way do I want this guy on my roster this year. So let's start with some hitters in the American League. Who do you like as a sleeper hitter? I picked uh, Jonathan Scope, uh, second baseman for the Orioles, just for the just for the home run pop that it, that he provides at uh, second base, um, he certainly could work on uh, making better contact, and his uh, you know his plate discipline numbers are are not very good. Um, but his 
he continues to show good power. His fly ball percentage uh, raised a bit last year. And, uh, you know, I think there could uh, well be plus home runs in that bat for Jonathan Scope. And how about in the National League? Who's a sleeper hitter? One of the guys that uh, stood out to me when we were doing the baseball forecaster uh, was Marlins catcher J.R. Realmuto. Um, for catcher, and uh, obviously we're all looking for some sort of production, anything that we can get out of catcher, uh, Realmuto really surprised with the strong skills second half, um, and perhaps the biggest surprise was the, the speed that he showed. Um, the metrics kind of backed that up. Uh, that, that that is for real, and uh, I think he's a player that could really have a uh, sort of a 15 home run, 15 stolen base upside, which obviously uh, at the catcher position would be a big plus. Moving over to the bleepers, who's a guy in the American League, a hitter you absolutely will not be rostering this year? I feel like I'm piling on a little bit, but uh, I came up with Pablo Sandoval. Uh, I just I think the uh, his plate discipline numbers continue to go down. Uh, his ground balls continue to go up. Uh, you kind of uh, never know about the, uh, the the weight and physical issues with their, uh, that are there. And, uh, you know, there's just so, even though he signed that big contract, there's just so much other young talent uh, on sort of the upswing there that uh, I don't think it creates a very good uh, position for Sandoval this year. So I don't think he'll be on any of my squads. And finally, a National League bleeper, a guy you don't want on your roster from the senior circuit. I think of this more just because of uh, the cost that it's going to be, but I picked uh, Kyle Schwarber. Um, yeah, I think the home runs are going to be there for him, and obviously then also this year, I mean, it is, it's going to be a plus to have him a catcher in that aspect. Um, but I do worry about him being overdrafted or overpriced because of the great uh, end of the season finish he had. Uh, there's still some serious concerns, I think, about uh, his ability to make contact. He's, uh, you know, he's he's not uh, very good defensively, um, and he has some trouble against left-handed pitching, too. So, again, with a team like the Cubs, it's sort of in this win-now win mode, uh, I, 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 I could see a, a situation where he ends up uh, doing more platoon work than what uh, we would think, and uh, could be a disappointment, I think. We've talked about Kyle Schwarber here on the show uh, in uh, earlier this year, and uh, Kyle Schwarber's kind of got the double whammy going. First of all, there's the very real likelihood of a platoon, and second of all, now you've got a platoon guy who can't field. It looks like a, there's, it seems to me, with the Cubs focused very intently on winning, there's a real risk here that he could find himself in the minors again, despite his prodigious bat. I think that's true for all the for all the things you mentioned. And, and again, I think the, there are going to be in some circles where the recency bias uh, thing is going to pop up. Pop up. Uh, they're going to remember, uh, you know, his great last couple months and, and uh, doing, doing well in the postseason, and I think it will uh, pump up his value um, artificially uh, as a, according to what I think, uh, w- without taking into serious consideration that downside risk. So Brent Hershey's sleepers and bleepers on the hitter side. His sleepers, Jonathan Scope of Baltimore, second baseman, and catcher J.T. Real Muto in the National League, catcher for Miami, of course. Uh, his bleeper hitters, Pablo Sandoval, third baseman, or maybe not anymore, for Boston, and Kyle Schwarber, catcher slash outfielder for the Cubs. Let's move over to the mound. Brent, in the American League, who's a pitcher that you would classify as a sleeper, a guy you wouldn't mind getting at a good price? 
Yeah, I'm interested to take a look at uh, how the market is going to value uh, Nate Carnes from Seattle. Uh, obviously, coming over to Seattle from uh, Tampa Bay in the fall, uh, he seems to be at the kind of the right age uh, to and has the kind of history of the workload to sort of be able to step into a, a, a to be an established starter. Now he had a um, his swinging strike rate was up in the second half. Um, and and I think he's got his uh, walks in, in under decent control too. I I just think uh, that uh, Carnes is someone that uh, I would be interested in in looking at as a sleeper. I like Nate Carnes too, Brent. But are you worried as I am about this idea that Tampa's pretty good at, at assessing pitching talent in particular, and if they are willing to give up on a guy, then maybe that is a bit of a red flag. I used to feel the same way about Atlanta if they traded a pitcher away. There was a pretty decent chance they knew what they were that what they were doing, and that therefore there was a maybe a heightened risk that this guy's not all he's cracked up to be. I think that that's a possibility. Uh, I mean, I think you raise a, a valid point. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, they had plenty of pitching and and needed to find uh, needed to find some hitters. I mean, they're obviously counting on Brad Miller. Uh, Marson also was in that deal. Um, not. Not super duper hitters, uh, but I, I think that uh, it could be, it you know, it could be that was the that to them was the best that they could get for uh, a pitcher and decide to make the move that way. So I mean, I, I yeah, I don't think it's a, a slam dunk, and I think that's a valid uh, thing to keep in mind when evaluating these guys when they have uh, when you have like Atlanta back in the day or uh, Tampa where have had success uh, doing that, but uh, you know, no one's foolproof either. And I I really took to account what you said about the fact that Tampa's just got a lot of pitching talent and maybe they were looking at the situation and said, we just, it, we have too much. And when you have a surplus, it's really not much use to you if you can turn it into something uh, that you do need. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Although, boy, the return Morrison and Miller, gosh, not exactly uh, getting back Ruth and Gehrig uh, to go back to the 27 Yankees again. Sure. How about a National League sleeper pitcher, Brent? Uh, I picked uh, Jared Eikhoff for the Phillies. Um, there's some uh, risk there too because uh, well, let me back up. He was the he was one of the uh, pitchers and actually sort of the last pitcher uh, that the uh, Phillies received in that in the Cole Hamels deal. In other words, I mean, seeming as the last pitcher, sort of down further on the when you looked at the prospects they received. Uh, but as soon as he uh, got into the Phillies organization, uh, his control really improved. He had a string of great starts at AAA. They brought him up in mid-August, and uh, he did really well. Um, continuing, got lots of swings and misses uh, on his curveball. Uh, was able to locate well. Now, on the one hand, it was, uh, you know, the last six weeks of the season, um, they were facing... Uh, Atlanta and some other offenses that were down. On the other hand, uh, he definitely made, I mean, these improvements. And, uh, you know, when you see a guy that, that that makes those improvements right after switching organizations, it makes you wonder maybe there is uh, something that a pitching coach saw or an instructor uh, helped him look at differently that, that changed his repertoire. I mean, I still think he's a, you know, a mid-rotation or number four guy at best, but I uh, I think he's someone that's flying under the radar, especially in Philly. Um, 
the, the given given the team situation, he's obviously not going to have much win potential. Uh, but it could be a back end uh, route to three guy that that could uh, surprise and give you some profit. Moving on to the bleepers, who's an American League pitcher, Brent, that you want no part of? I have uh, Ubaldo Jimenez. He's just uh, been so volatile, I think, over the, over his career, and and these, and I don't. What looked like an improvement last year really didn't seem to be much for me. And it really could uh, extend that to almost uh, any Baltimore starter at this point. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see, I think Kevin Gossman has uh, has uh, some potential. I uh, saw him in the minor leagues and really like what I saw. And I haven't seen that production in the American League. But, but uh, basically, any Baltimore starter other than Gossman, I'm not going to, uh, I don't believe I'm going to have on my uh, team. And uh, Jimenez is sort of the... Uh, prototypical one that uh, I don't uh, I won't have a part of boy I remember not that long ago when Ubaldo Jimenez is putting together re- one really good year that I seem to recall and one really good half year that I seem to recall but yeah it's a uh, it's a roller coaster ride when you're with Ubaldo Jimenez and, and uh, I agree with you I don't think uh, I don't think he's the kind of guy that anybody can really afford to roster unless maybe you get him in a deep reserve round pick or something like that and you can watch him for signs of some kind of uh, repeat performance from his uh, peak performances in past years. But, yeah, how about in the National League, uh, a bleeper pitcher? I put, uh, and again, this is a little bit on uh, similar to Schwarber and it's actually on the same team, I realize. Uh, I put John Lackey there. His skills in last year really didn't support the statistical bump that he got, ERA and such. Um, he had a really high strand rate. Uh, I don't think there's much of any chance. His skills say that he's, uh, you know, that his ERA is not going to be under three again. Um, he's 37, uh, so he's getting up there in age. Um, and and I just think that uh, even with, uh, you know, going to a good team like that, uh, I just think that there's too many signs uh, that, that he could regress. So I, I sort of doubt that I'll end up with uh, John Lackey on any of my uh, squads this year. I had John Lackey in a mixed league last year, and of course it was a very pleasant surprise. But uh, I had drafted him on the basis that he was usually pretty good for being right around his expected ERA. The two previous seasons, uh, 350 and 367 for expected ERAs, 352 and 382 for actual ERA. So he was right in the ballpark. Then last year, his expected goes up to 380. And his ERA drops to 280, or even less, a little bit. And uh, for that reason, I, I think you're onto something here, John Lackey, especially at age 37. I don't know a full bleeper, but certainly a very risky proposition. Probably going to be overpriced based on last year. Yeah, that's what I would agree. I mean, I think when when we talk bleepers, especially, uh, you know, I I think of also guys that I'm not going to roster because the uh, price is going to likely be too high. And so that's uh, that's where I go, especially with Schwarber and uh, and Lackey. Especially if you're in a league with any Cubs fans, boy, the price will be uh, through the roof. Maybe you can bid them up, but you got to be careful. Uh, Brent, this has been terrific. Thanks very much for doing it. Sure. Thanks. Uh, anytime, Patrick. Glad to come back. And tell us where listeners can read more uh, of your work. Uh, everything, that, uh, just about everything I do is on uh, BaseballHQ.com. Um, I have a Facebooker, but do have a Twitter feed at Brent HQ, uh, which I tweet out uh, links to uh, both, uh, my stuff as well as stuff on Baseball HQ. And I've uh, been doing a, a couple things this spring uh, for on uh, 
non-fantasy related on uh, USA Today Sports. Um, and again, those I uh, have those links out on my uh, Twitter feed. But that's uh, where you can find me. Brent Hershey is a member of the minor league scouting team at BaseballHQ.com and the general manager of content for the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have our expert commentaries coming up next, but first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, in a Facts and Flukes Spotlight, Ryan Bloomfield goes in-depth with Houston right-handed starter Colin McHugh. This is an article from 2015 that we're republishing because it won the Fantasy Sports Writers Association Award for the Best Fantasy Baseball Web Article. In the Speculator column, Ray Murphy looks at all the players who had upside notes in the baseball forecaster. And our Buyer's Guide skills assessments include Stephen Nickrand's new Batting Buyer's Guide column looking at young breakout speculations for 2016, including Ketel Marte and Trace Thompson. We also provide all kinds of other information and roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have our playing time, forecaster position profiles, and master notes. But leading it off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on St. Louis right-hander Alex Reyes is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The St. Louis Cardinals' Alex Reyes will miss the first 50 games of the 2016 season for testing positive for marijuana use for the second time. As troubling as that may be, it doesn't change the fact that Reyes might have the best pure stuff of any pitching prospect in baseball. The 21-year-old Reyes was signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2012 and quickly made a name for himself when his fastball started lighting up radar guns, topping out at 100 miles an hour. Since then, he has refined his mechanics and developed a plus 12-6 power curveball that has become a true swing and miss offering. Reyes also mixes in an above average to plus changeup, which gives him three major league ready offerings. He has struggled with control at times and for his career has walked 4.6 per 9, which is definitely not good. But when he's on, he can be overpowering. In 2015, for example, he struck out 13.5 per 9 across three different levels and gave up just one home run in 101.1 innings. Reyes should be back in action by June, and the Cardinals have done an excellent job of putting their prospects in situations where they can succeed. If you can get him on the cheap and are willing to wait, he makes an excellent endgame option. For those in long-term keeper formats, Reyes is a must-own and has the stuff to become a true staff ace or an elite closer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All through the preseason and all through the season, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or taking a seat on the bench. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the battle for left field in Cincinnati and whether Steve Sishek should be sleepless in Seattle. Two out of three outfield slots are settled in Cincinnati, with Billy Hamilton and Jay Bruce holding down full-time roles, but there's a battle forming in left field that could have big-time fantasy implications. 
Brian Rudd of BaseballHQ.com recently looked into the battle for left field for the Reds in a Playing Time Tomorrow column where he identified a number of potential players, most notably Adam Duvall, Jorman Rodriguez, Scott Shebler, and eventually Jesse Winker. We'll start with Duvall, who's the most experienced of the group. Duvall was recently featured in Ray Murphy's Speculator column on BaseballHQ.com due to his considerable power upside, which we noted in the baseball forecaster could materialize into a mid-20s home run total. The risk with Duvall, however, is in his plate approach, as his contact rate has hovered in the low 70s in recent seasons, and his walk rate hasn't been as good either. It makes for, it makes for Duvall being a pretty significant batting average risk. And then there's Jesse Winker, who's the Reds' top-hitting prospect. He was ranked as Baseball HQ's number 53 prospect overall in our recent HQ 100. Winker spent all of 2015 at AA, where he hit 282 with 13 homers, 8 steals, and put together some solid plate skills doing so. Spring performances will play a big role in determining the winner here, but Duvall is probably the front-runner, with Shebler getting a long look from the left side of the plate. Duvall carries the most potential for fantasy value as his power alone makes an attractive endgame target. Odds are, though, that a potential Duvall-Shebler platoon is just keeping the seat warm for Winker, who could easily be up this summer and potentially earlier if Duvall's plate skills suffer. Winker will likely experience some bumps in the road this year at the MLB level, but he still makes for an intriguing stash later this season. In the American League, we head to the Pacific Northwest, where Seattle recently named Steve Ciszek as their closer. I'm skeptical this is a done deal, though, as Ciszek put up horrific skills last season with a 1.8 strikeout-to-walk rate and a 4.42 expected ERA. The 30-year-old Ciszek has also lost a mile and a half on his fastball since he saved 39 games for Miami in 2014, so he's definitely on some shaky ground as a potential closer. Joaquin Benoit currently stands as next in line for the Mariners, and he's coming off three straight seasons of a sub-250 ERA. Benoit misses plenty of bats, as we see in his 17% swinging strike rate last year, and his long baseline of excellent skills suggests Benoit is probably a better fit for the role right now than Ciszek. Benoit is 38 years old, so there's a touch of age risk here, but he's been reliable in recent seasons and, again, is probably a better option. Deep leaguers may want to speculate on Evan Scribner as a shot-in-the-dark closer option later this season. Scribner did put up a 435 ERA last year, but the underlying skills were elite. He had a 64-4 strikeout-to-walk rate and a 3.0 expected ERA. Scribner's a long shot given his current role, but the skills are there and he'll cost next to nothing even in the deepest of leagues. So despite Steve Ciszek's anointment as closer in Seattle, Joaquin Benoit still stands as a decent shot to get saves this year, and Evan Scribner is an even deeper sleeper worth speculating on in deep leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our Forecaster Position Profile Report. The Baseball Forecaster Annual includes extensive tools and cheat sheets for draft preparation. And during this preseason, Baseball HQ Radio will be letting you in on how the positions shape up from the forecaster lists. Here with a look at corner infielders, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. To begin at the beginning, let's start at first base. Our research shows that of all positions, First basemen offer the best overall fantasy production, so getting one of the top 13 would put you well on your way to winning. There are three elite, six gold, 
and four-star first baseman. In OBP leagues, you could move three of them up from gold to elite, Joey Votto, Edwin Encarnacion, and Chris Davis, who is the only one of the top 13 also eligible in the outfield. You'll want at least one from that Baker's dozen on your team, and they are all nearly equally distributed between the AL with seven and the NL with six. Among the elite, Paul Goldschmidt has the best reliability grades for health, experience, and consistency. Among the gold, it's Adrian Gonzalez, and the aforementioned Edwin Encarnacion. And among the stars, it's Albert Pujols, Freddie Freeman, and Lucas Duda. The only star without desirable reliability grades is Brandon Belt, whose straight C's coincidentally point to his concussions. Players with high reliability grades make good targets, and you'll need a bullseye with one of those top 13 names because there is a drastic drop-off in talent at the next two levels, especially in the National League. On top of that, you can expect half of your league mates to take first baseman for their corner infield slots and another half for their UT slots. Imagine every owner in your league with an evil twin set to steal all your first base targets. You need to study the pool and be ready with carefully selected secondary targets. Between the next two tiers, regulars and mid-levels, there are 21 first basemen, but only seven in the National League. Ryan Zimmerman is the only regular in the National League, while the American League has six, including the one with the highest reliability grades, Carlos Santana, and the outfield-eligible Mark Trumbo, who should add to his home run totals in cozy Camden Yards. The 14 mid-level first basemen are evenly divided, with six in the NL, six in the AL, and two unsigned free agents. Speaking of which, watch where Pedro Alvarez lands and give him a bump up your list if it's a good situation for him. Alvarez is one of five mid-levels with high reliability grades, joining Mark Canna, Chris Carter, Brandon Moss, and Mike Napoli. Canna and Moss get an extra bump for their outfield eligibility. To summarize, because first basemen own the top positional productivity and they are likely to be used at corner and utility, depending upon how many and which first basemen you and others protect as keepers in your league, plan as if every team had two first base slots to fill. To be competitive, you'll need to target first basemen earlier in drafts or budget more salary for them in auctions, especially in NL-only leagues. And one final note on first base. If you're forced to dive deeper into the pool, take second looks at these best bets from the bench. Travis Shaw, Ben Paulson, Darren Ruff, and Steve Pierce. Following first baseman and productivity are designated hitters, outfielders, and then the other corner infielders, third baseman. There aren't as many elite, gold, or star third basemen as there are first basemen, but there is a far more solid set of regular and mid-level players. Among the three elite third basemen, reliability honors go to Nolan Arenado. The only gold third baseman is Chris Bryant, and there are five stars, with the best reliability grades coming from the American League, thanks to American League crossover Todd Frazier, steadily improving Kyle Seeger, and aging Adrian Beltre. There's more bad news for NL-only leaguers here. Just three of the nine players in those top three groups are from the senior circuit. Six are in the AL. But finally, there's an edge for NL-only leaguers among the regular third basemen, with seven in the NL and just two in the AL. The best reliability grades among regulars are also in the National League, with Martin Prado and Jan Gervis Salarte earning honors. 
young Nick Castellanos joins them from the junior circuit. And the National League even boasts the best breakout candidate from among the regulars with Michael Franco. If you're in an NL-only league and you don't get one of its three elite, gold, or star third basemen, be aggressive in targeting one of those seven regulars. At the mid-level, the American League again returns the better report cards with a reliability-grade honor roll of Trevor Plouffe, Chase Headley, Luis Valbuena, and Pablo Sandoval. Plouffe and Headley make steady targets, and Plouffe and Valbuena are both also eligible at first base. The best that NL-only leaguers can do with their mid-level group is hope for a full season if forced to take a flyer on former first-rounder David Wright, who is one of only two mid-level third basemen. And just to rub it in, there are eight mid-level third basemen for AL-only leaguers to choose from, including two without field eligibility, Danny Valencia and Lonnie Chisenhall. So remember that in general, first basemen are the most productive hitters in fantasy baseball, and your league mates will be after twice as many of them because they make attractive targets for corner infielder and UT slots. Plan to use a premium pick or pay a premium price for a top first baseman to anchor your offense. If you're in an NL-only league, your lifesavers may come from the six mid-level first basemen and or the seven regular third basemen. But you'll need to pay close attention to the market to even get one of them. And just because we didn't bemoan the tough competition for corner infielders in AL-only or mixed leagues, don't think you're home free. We hope this position preview helps you build your auction budgets or plan your draft rounds for corner infielders. Next week, we'll look at middle infielders. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up again this week and I'd like to talk about leaving a long-term home league. Earlier this year, I did something I never really thought I'd do. I left the Regina Rotisserie Baseball League. In the modern era of fantasy baseball, leaving a league probably doesn't seem like a big deal to many players. They play in dozens of leagues, many of those leagues are online, and they break down more often than my 1984 Kia. I got into the RRBL back in 1992. I was paying for university working as a part-time radio announcer, assaulting listeners' ears with wham and aha records at CFMQFM, Q92 Light Rock FM, in Regina, Saskatchewan. Across the hallway was a country AM station, CKRM, and I got to be pals with the announcer there. Perry was a big baseball fan, and he was in an AL-only 12-team roto league. When an opening came up, I got invited to join. I didn't just get to waltz in and get my place at the table, though. I had to go through two interviews with senior league members, answering questions about the value of George Brett, still pretty good as he approached age 40, and who was the backup catcher for Toronto that year. Greg Myers, in fact, behind Pat Borders. The meeting was held at a local pub, as I remember it, and I think I helped my cause by buying a round or two. Over the years, we held our drafts in many different venues. We had a few in the cafeteria at the newspaper where I worked. We had a couple in the caucus rooms at the Saskatchewan Legislature. We had drafts in the basement of an Elks Hall, a couple of different hotel conference rooms, and two or three different restaurants. I remember one of those restaurants well. It was a buffet place, and when we broke for lunch, my friend Darwin and I went into the buffet area, and we asked the waitress, Is the buffet here pretty good? And she said, Eh. Talk about a recommendation, huh? 
My favorite draft was the one we held in the Royal Canadian Legion Hall in Radville, Saskatchewan, a very small farm town, where they greeted us like arriving celebrities. Our draft even made the local paper. And they provided us a huge homemade banquet. Turkey and roast beef, all the fixins, it was terrific. But my first draft was really something special. I guess you never forget it. It was held in a shack next to the Canadian Pacific Railway main line running through town. And it wasn't just any shack, it was an unheated shack. And that draft in March 1992 was very cold. We were all sitting around the table wearing parkas and winter boots. The fact that there even was a table kind of surprised me because I'd have thought someone would have long ago burned it for warmth. The first part of that draft was the farm picks. I got a can't-miss prospect, Roger Salkeld, a pitcher in the Mariners organization. Yeah, he missed. Then came the auction. I don't remember much about it, except I got Ruben Sierra for $61, which was a record that stayed in place for many years until Alex Rodriguez went for 62 some time later. I also got Danny Tartable for more than $40, and, remarkably, George Brett for 4 bucks. I immediately traded Brett for another can't-miss prospect, Jeff McNally of the Red Sox. Not surprisingly, I finished that first year in last place, mostly due to my own dunderheadedness, partly because it was a keeper league that obliged new teams to come in with no players and no other assets. But even finishing 12th out of 12 was tremendous fun, and I was hooked. I particularly liked talking about the game itself, the strategies, the tactics, the planning. I loved every part of it, and I still do. I did pretty well in the league after that first year. I finished in the top half most of the years, made the money a few times. In 2001, I had a stacked team going into draft. I paid 40 bucks for Robbie Alomar to fill in the last hole, and I won my league. I repeated in 2002 with much the same roster. I think Paul Molitor played a big role that year, and I won again in 2008. I would have won two more times, except for some trades by other teams that really cost me. The first of these was in 1995. It was just my fourth year in the league, and I had a dandy squad. I was running away with the league when the Knights, who were in 10th place at the time, made the most lopsided trade in history with a team called the Drifters. Here's what happened. The deal started with a catcher for a catcher. The Drifters got the 39-year-old husk of Lance Parrish, and the Knights got future Hall of Famer Ivan Rodriguez. They also traded third baseman. The Drifters got journeyman Oriole Jeff Manto, yes, the Jeff Manto, while the Knights got future Hall of Famer Wade Boggs. The Drifters got some other players even less noteworthy than Jeff Manto and Lance Parrish, and the Knights got Jay Buhner and future Hall of Famer, except for the steroids thing, Raphael Palmero. Finally, the Drifters got 35-year-old former ace Dennis Martinez and gave back to the Knights a reliever named Tony Castillo, who was just about to be named closer of the Blue Jays and ended up getting 13 valuable saves while Martinez got just eight wins. If I remember correctly, Drifters also got that 1984 Kia and Knights got a new Cadillac Seville. In all, the Knights traded away 20 home runs and got back 83. They traded 55 RBIs to get 292. Buhner alone had 100 RBIs after the trade was made. Parrish and Manto combined to bat 227, while the Knights' pickups batted a combined 303 in hundreds and hundreds of at-bats. And the long and the short of it, I lost a league I should have won by 20 points by a single point. That outrageous dump deal almost destroyed our league. And about the only good thing that happened was that we changed our rules to forbid next year trading. The other deal was sneakier, but a little easier to take. In 2006, my competitor, the Spurs, had a smart owner, and he maneuvered past me by trading Elmer Dessens. 
In the unlikely event you remember Elmer Dessens at all, you will recall he was not anyone's definition of a league-changing pitcher. And in fact, he didn't really change our league. His salary did. You see, Dessens had been traded to the National League, taking his 450 ERA and 141 whip to the Dodgers. Under our league rules, his owner could recover his salary as a fab refund. Now Spurs, my competitor, owned Dessens but traded him to an also-ran in our league. The also-ran therefore got the fab refund, which gave him just enough fab to pass me by a buck. That meant he got Bobby Abreu, just on his way over from the National League to the American, and Abreu, you might remember, had a fantastic stretch run for the Yankees. He batted three thirty, hit seven home runs, drove in forty two, and stole ten bases in just fifty eight games. Abreu's great performance pushed that also ran team past me in a couple of categories, and again I lost the championship race by a single point. Now the fun of being in a home league is that guys can gather around and swap war stories like this one. After a while, the sting of it is gone, and all that's left are the laughs. Then in 2010, my wife and daughters and I moved away from Regina, and that changed everything. I couldn't afford the time and cost to travel back for draft every year, so I took on a partner to handle the auction for me. It was a comedy of errors, it didn't go well, and it was certainly no fun for me. And I started to wonder, if you're not attending your league's draft, are you really in the league at all? But the worst of it was being out of the loop, hearing about the guys going for beers or pizza, talking about baseball and making deals. There was a time when we had a standing night out at Tumblr's Pizza on Gordon Road in Regina, where they had multiple satellite feeds of games that went well into the night. That's all changed now, of course, with the internet and extra innings on cable, and being thousands of miles away has made all the difference. So after almost 25 years, I left my home league. I put a message on the league Facebook page, and just like that, I was no longer in the Regina Rotisserie Baseball League. I'm in tout wars now. I'm moving from mixed auction to AL only, so I'll get my single league action. And to paraphrase Lore Michaels, tout now feels like my home league. But I'm still hoping to find a local roto league to play in, make a few new buddies, and maybe talk some ball over a beer some night. So if you're in the Kitchener-Waterloo area in southwest Ontario, and your league has an opening, let me know. Send an email to bhqradio at gmail.com with your league details, and I promise I'll get back to you. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, General Manager of Content at BaseballHQ.com. It was Brent Hershey, and what a great job he did. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And congratulations again to Ryan for picking up that Fantasy Sports Writers Association Award. And our forecaster position preview analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook. And we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio at gmail.com. 
Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Tell us what you don't like. And remember, you'll always be the first to know when the new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.